0: Good morning. Are you having a great Christmas season? No? All right. Those of you that haven't gotten my gift yet, I have a list of my sizes and preferences that uh, you can get on the way out today. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and these guys will be glad to give you one. I really hope you can be with us tomorrow night. It's always uh, Christmas Eve, the communion service is always a special time in the life of a church and just come together as a family of God and spend a little time together worshiping and sharing in communion. So we're going to do that tomorrow night at 5 o'clock. Now what we're going to do, for those of you who haven't given your life to Christ yet, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have communion tomorrow, and I'm going to have our service at five o'clock. And then at six o'clock, we're all going to load up and go to Christmas City together. So, how many of you have been? Uh, there's two. We got a number of people who are saved here. That's good. We made the mistake of going last night, as opposed to going last Friday night when we should have gone, which is what I wanted to do. But anyway, the weather didn't cooperate. We went last night. And I said, "Well, we'll leave early and won't be a problem." We left at five. And we sat in line, parked for an hour and 15 minutes once we got out there. See, apparently, somebody likes it. So we sat there for an hour and 15 minutes determining whether we were, which one of us is going to take another's life in the car. before <laughs> What I wanted to do was park the car and walk the, the uh, three-quarters of a mile from the corner church. Uh, I didn't get any cooperation on that particular point. But after about 45 minutes, it was beginning to look like a good option. Other people were doing it, and I thought we could walk, and it would be Ryan's problem to find a place to park the car, but I found him a parking place when we got there, and once you get there, it's just like, it's heaven. So we're, we're sitting in the hollowed-out school bus with the turf floor, had a brand new space heater on our table, I thought that was nice, and we're eating our concession stand food. Ella kept saying, we've got to go, I have to eat nasty food. So anyway, we were sitting there eating, and there was a family in there, and I didn't I didn't notice. They were just in there with us, and uh, because when we're at Christmas City, we own the place. So I just we're just there enjoying it, and we step off the bus to go ride the tram and and be part of uh, heaven. And this lady steps out of the bus, and she's just staring at me. And I said, "Well, I, I know I look good in this outfit, but..." And then finally, she said, "Where do I know you from?" And I had no idea who she was. And and then she she mentioned, I, I think you spoke at my father's funeral. and That didn't help me. And then, and then she said, my sister is so-and-so. And I, yes, then I knew. And I said, I did speak at your father's funeral. And so we had a nice time there talking to each other. So you better behave even in Christmas City. You never know. So we were there, I don't know, an hour and a half or so, and we'd we'd already set in line an hour and a half to get there. We're there an hour and a half, we're getting ready to leave, and there were still cars lined up all the way down to the turnoff, so another hour and a half before they were going to get in. so the the moral of all of that is don't go on Saturday night. Go on Friday night like we should have done, like Charles and Janine, smart people, took their grandkids the Friday night before when we should have gone, and they didn't have any problem, but... Once you get there, it's worth the hour and a half waiting in the car. At least for my personal opinion. Here's what my son-in-law said. He said, next year, you won't have to worry about me sitting in line. <laughs> he said, because I'll be sitting in line at home while y'all are out here. All right. I want you to do something for me, but I want you to relax if you do it. Everybody relaxed, Enjoying Christmas? That's good. Turn to John chapter 1. Now you can relax. We're only going to cover... One verse. So turn to John chapter 1 in your scriptures. And several weeks ago as I was sharing, uh, even back in November even, thinking about what, it, what would God like me to share this year at Christmas. And we were talking about two words that just kept coming to my mind. And we talked about, for example, Emmanuel, God with us. And today we're going to focus on the other word, the incarnation, God in the flesh. And what a significant moment that is. If you'll notice the title of the message for today, and really what I want to encourage you with, uh, for example, even today as we're singing these songs, and you think about Silent Night, and and other Christmas carols, but the, the deep theology, I would encourage you, if you've never done it, Get get you copies of the lyrics of Christmas carols like Silent Night, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Joy to the World, even though as Peter shared with us, it was not originally written as a Christmas carol. It was written more to celebrate the second coming, but still obviously it's become one of the most, most revered of Christmas carols. But Joy to the World, Silent Night, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, on and on, Little Town of Bethlehem. Just get them and... Read the lyrics and meditate on the lyrics. And what you will notice is you'll see Scripture just jumping off the page at you. That we're being reminded of joy to the world. The Lord is come. The first advent of God. And really many things. But what I want to focus on today is that mindset. How special Christmas was. How many of you have ever gotten a gift that you just said, This is the worst thing I've ever received. Okay, Mary does that every year because I always give her something I know is stupid. I do it on purpose. We don't really change a lot of gifts and never have because there was no way. We got married uh, 45 years ago and the first gift I gave her after that, it was like, please don't ever try to buy me clothes again. And uh, so I would give her stuff like bubble gum and and, uh, things I knew, uh, deep gifts, so (laughs) <laughs> we knew that wasn't going to work. But every now and so now every year, I just give her a gift. She has no idea what it's going to be, and she knows it's going to be stupid. But deep down, she really likes it. You know why? Because I gave it to her. We'll talk more about that later. Okay. So gifts. We give them. We receive them. And I know my my. I love my wife, and I love her sweetheart, and one of the things she just loves to do is she, she, want, she wants to make sure her grandkids get something that's special. It's just the part of being a grandparent. What I want to say is, look, we do stuff for them all the time. Don't worry about it. Uh, that's not the heart of a grandmother, is it? So you you love your grandchildren. You love your children, and you, and you love to give them gifts and see those faces light up and, and how special that day is. What I want you to to leave with today is what God gave you individually, yes, us corporately as the church, but I want you to be excited, encouraged, even as maybe we come back tomorrow night, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, but even as you leave today, that you realize that at Christmas, God gave us and you the greatest gift that's ever been given on this planet anyone he gave you himself look at John 114 114 the word became flesh incarnation in the flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth what we're going to focus on today is the person of the word that God at Christmas gave us himself. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, so loved us, so loved you, that he gave, what did he give? His only begotten Son. What does that mean? It means the unique one of the universe, the Word. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So, why is Jesus Christ so significant? That he is the Word. Look at John 1. One, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Talk more about that in just a second. Ray Stedman, great theologian from the 60s and the 70s, said this about Jesus Christ. Jesus was easily the most shattering, the most radical, and truly revolutionary character that has ever appeared in human history. More books have been written about Jesus than any other figure of the past. More music has been composed. More pictures have been painted. More great drama has been written about Jesus than any other person. Have you ever wondered why? Why is it that human beings have never been able to forget Jesus of Nazareth? Why does he not fade into the dim past as others have? We don't spend that much time with Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, or any of the great leaders. We still know who they are, but we don't spend all that focus of interest and attention on them. But Jesus looms as large in our society today as if he was contemporary with us. Why is that? Why is he the most powerful personality ever to appear on this planet? End quote. Why? Because it was the incarnation. He was Jesus, the man from Nazareth, but he was also the Christ, the anointed one, the savior of the world in God in the flesh. There have been a lot of great men and a lot of great women that have walked our planet and have done amazing things. But Jesus was God in the flesh. And he came for one reason, to redeem mankind. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Peace on earth. Goodwill to men, Scripture says. And literally what that means is peace to men, individual men and women on earth who have a heart of goodwill. It doesn't mean that that the Arabs and the Israelis are not going to fight each other anymore. What it means is is that Randy Lockley can have peace with God because Jesus came. God in the flesh. So when you're thinking about this, it's interesting. When you get to the Gospel of John. That it's unique. John, when he writes this, is about a he's an old man, probably about a hundred years old. He's not writing to cover the same ground that Matthew, Mark, and Luke covered. It's it's one of the oldest books, one of the newer books in the New Testament. Uh, all of Paul's epistles have been written, Peter's have been written, and the gospels have been written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their gospels to tell. A biographical story of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was the servant savior in Mark's case. Matthew was writing to the Jews to prove that he was king of the Jews. Mark as the servant savior. And Luke was writing a chronological historical account for everyone to see history. He was this man. Biographical. Not John. John wrote not a bio- not a biographical story record of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, John wrote a theological treatise on the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is God. You don't have to turn there, but in John 20, at the end of his book, the gospel, John says this, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is God and that believing in him, you might have life in his name. Jesus himself said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, abundantly. Not talking about money, talking about the essence of life, what it means to be a human being. You were created to know God. Jesus makes that possible. You were created to have peace with God. Only Jesus makes that possible. You were created to know the peace of God. Only Jesus makes those kinds of things possible. In John 14, I told you we are only going to cover one verse. In John 14, Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. His legacy to us, his gift to us, Christmas is the peace of God. You can't find that anyplace else. We all want it. Even if we don't say we want it, we want it. We want to be have peace in our souls. Deep down know. What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Where am I going? I've officiated at two funerals this week, been to three. And the one thing that I'm struck by, even again yesterday, a dear friend of mine's brother died and I'm doing the funeral for them, and one of the things that I'm struck by is looking at the faces of people who really don't know Christ at a funeral. They're just blank. There's nothing there. Now, in the life of a believer, like my friend, my, my dear brother who lost his brother, he was hurting, he was agonizing. But because he's born again, he knew and knows the truth. And he has a comfort that we understand as believers that death is not victory in our lives. Jesus defeated death when he rose from the dead. That's why Christmas is so cool, that God came as a human being. A humble beginning, a humble life, the most humiliating death that a human being, any human being could ever put another through, crucifixion. Beating where your vital organs are exposed, mocking, being spit on. You're the God of the universe. God gave himself. What a gift. He chose willingly, volitionally to go through that for us, for you. That's why Christmas is so special. God gave us himself. You're that special. And what's so interesting about it when you realize it in your individual life, I know we know it, but I think it's important at times just to stop and reflect on. Jesus loved us as a human race, as individuals, knew us before we were ever in our mother's womb, the Bible talks about. He loved me when I did not reciprocate. I didn't love him in return. Read Romans 5. While we were yet in our sins, verse 8 says, he died for us. We were his enemy. We were helpless. We were ungodly. We didn't care about him. We cared about whom? ourselves. We're born with that, that nature. That's what it means to be born in sin, is that my life is about me. You know anybody that's that way? Do you used to be that way? Sure. But then Jesus sets you free. It gives you a new nature. And only he can do that. That's why Christmas is so unique. Who was this man? So you go back to verse 1. As he opens his gospel, John says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John's purpose, as he said a moment ago, was to write write a great theological treatise that Jesus is God. And he had that great verse, John 8, 58, where John records Jesus looking at the Pharisees. They're talking about Father Abraham. And Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. Those Jews instantly knew that he was claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, the one who sent him before Pharaoh. They knew that he was claiming to be eternal Yahweh, Jehovah, Elohim, God. And the Bible says from that moment forward, they had one desire about Jesus. What was it? We got to kill him. We got to kill him. And he allowed them to do that. Why? Because he loved you. And he loved them, by the way. Even as they were beating him and scourging him and crucifying him, what does Jesus say hanging from the cross? As his life ebbs away, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now that's a God you can love because he loves you. But he loves you even if you don't reciprocate. That's what makes him unique because he is God. John Calvin calls John 1, 1, and 2, quote, The speech of God. Another theologian said John 1, 1 and 2 is the most compact and pulsating theological statement in all scripture. Think about it this way. Matthew, I know you love to do this. If you open your Bible, and you don't have to do it now because you'll fall asleep, and I'm the only one allowed to fall asleep during the sermon. But if you open your Bible right now to Matthew 1, what will you begin to read? So-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, and and then you fall asleep. If you're ever having a problem with sleeping, just read Matthew 1, and you will be asleep within minutes. Luke 1, how does it begin? So-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. Those genealogies were important to Jews in particular, incredibly important. But here's the point. Matthew begins with Jesus' birth, Christmas so-and-so begat so-and-so, and here's Jesus. Luke begins with Jesus' birth on earth. So-and-so begat so-and-so, here's Jesus. And there are reasons for that we'll not get into today. And then uh, Luke, I mean Mark, excuse me, Matthew, Luke, and then Mark begins with Jesus' earthly ministry, his baptism and then going about doing his earthly ministry. So all three of the synoptic gospels, the biographical ones, begin with Jesus' life on earth. Please look at John 1.1 again. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Drop down to verse 14, the Word became flesh, incarnation. John doesn't begin with Jesus' life on earth. Where does John begin? Before there was an earth. John begins with the beginning. In the beginning, and in Greek it means before there was time, there was the Word. How does your Bible begin in Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, out of nothing God created So in the beginning, before there was time, before there was a universe, before there was a space-time continuum, before there was anything that we look at and try to figure out, there was God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word's with God, the Word was God. So John begins with, before there was anything, there was God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In perfect love and harmony and fellowship, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word is logos. We get logic from it, and it means to explain a thought. Talk more about that in a moment. But here's the idea: in the upper room discourse, as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, his last night on the planet, when he's with those eleven guys that are going to carry forward, take his great commission to all the world, make disciples of him, as he ends the upper room discourse in John 17, he begins to pray. For his disciples. And he also prays for us, all who will believe in his name as a result of their ministry. He prays for us. But here's how he begins his prayer Father, glorify me together with the glory we, plural pronoun, had before the world was. So he goes back to when? Prior to Genesis 1 1, prior to anything. There was Jesus, there was, there was God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want you to notice, John 1. In the beginning, before there was anything else, was the Word? The Word was with God, the Word was God. He begins with eternity, past. It's always existed. Before there was anything else, face to, uh, the literal in uh, the, the prayer I just read, the, the literal, it's a beautiful picture in Greek, is face-to-face face. was the Father, The Son and the Holy Spirit glorifying who is God. The only self-existent thing in the universe is God. Everything else was created, including Satan, humanity, all the angels, all the universe. I always laugh when we're trying to explain things and they they find like a moon around Jupiter and we're going crazy. That There's something out there. Just think about it. God just spoke it into existence. In the beginning was the Word. If you continue to read, and we're not going to read it, it says the Word was the Creator. Go back and you read Genesis. All the stars that we look at, millions, just just in the Milky Way, just in our galaxy alone, we can't even fathom them. How does the Bible say God made stars? Because, oh, he made the stars also. That's the exact quote. He made the stars also. He knows every one of them. That's who the word is. That's who your savior is. That's how much he loves you. Now, the word was with God. Co-eternal, co-equal. The literal in the tense of the verb, not to be boring, but so you'll get the beauty of this, is something that's always been, that continues now and forever. We get our word eternal from it. Jesus said in his earthly ministry, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Revelation 19, the Bible says this. He, talking about Jesus, was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In First John 1, the Bible written by John, Revelation written by John, First John written by John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we've seen with our eyes, we've, we've looked on, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested. We have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. John writes in his epistle the same thing he writes in his gospel John is the only writer in the New Testament who refers to Jesus as the Word. No one else does. So something the Holy Spirit laid on him, and he said, I saw the Word, the eternal Word of God. I got to see him. I got to listen to him. I got to hang out with him. He manifested that eternal life to us. And back to John 1.1, that phrase, the Word, that Word, the Word, it means the audible or visible explanation of, of a thought. Now, let me sum all this up for you before we get into the sermon. Jesus, our Christmas gift, God gave Himself because He was the Word. Jesus explains God. Jesus explains God. It's the creative energy of the universe that He spoke into existence. He explains God. I was reading this cool story this week about a little girl. She was about five years old, and it, I was thinking about it. Thought I found it because we have a five-year-old granddaughter who doesn't like storms. And This little girl was terrified. It was a horrific thunderstorm going around their house, and, and you know the, the lightning and the thunder. And she said, "Daddy, Daddy, I'm scared. We're, we're, are we going to be all right?" She said. He said, "God's going to take care of us. We're going to be okay." And little girl, and then. Just, you know, just a couple of seconds later, boom, another clap of thunder. She said, Daddy, Daddy, are we going to be all right? Yes, God's going to take care of us. A few moments later, boom, she said, "Daddy, Daddy, I'm terrified. He said, I'm telling you, God's with us. We're going to be all right. She goes, I know God's with us and I know God loves us. But right now, I'd like a God with a little skin on it. She was terrified. You know what Jesus is? He's God with skin on him. God, the son, became the son of man, 100% God, 100% man, so that we would understand who God is. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Think of the things Jesus did. Your average knucklehead doesn't walk on top of water. He even allowed Peter to walk on top of water as long as Peter did what? Stayed focused on Jesus. We took his eyes off Jesus. What happened to him? Same thing can happen to me and you. We try to walk on water. Sunk like a stone. Jesus said, I will draw all men unto me. I'll be lifted up. Put your eyes on me. He said, I'll set you free. All kinds of stuff. You know the quotes. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm everything you ever hoped for or needed. I am that. I am the I am. I came for you. God in the flesh. So let's quickly go through this outline. Verse 14. You see the incarnation of God. Verse 14. God, the son, became one of us. The great logos we've been talking about, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. Jesus of Nazareth was a human being. Even if you don't believe the Bible, you can go back and read Josephus and other Jewish historians. This person existed. And you may not believe him to be God. You may believe the things in the Bible are a fairy tale. But the man existed. And even Josephus, a non-believer, wrote this man was the Christos, the Christ, The Messiah. They didn't understand that he was God. They didn't understand it was an eternal kingdom. They thought it was an earthly thing, but they knew he was unique. He didn't. When he taught, people were mesmerized. When when he did things that, when he healed somebody, it was obvious that they were healed. When there's a keg of water sitting here, H2O. When he when he when he turns away from it, it's no longer H2O. It's wine. He does things. No, did things no one else can do a man with congenital blindness, and suddenly that he can see, on and on. The word became flesh. Now, please note the difference. This is real important. In John 1.1, it says, in the beginning was the word. The tense of that verb is, always has been, is now, and always will be. Verse 14, that word, the eternal God, the Son, that God became flesh. The Greek tense in verse 14 is at a definite moment in time this occurred. At some moment in time, Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem in a feed trough, placed in a feed trough. That was a definite moment in time. For example, I was born January 17, 1954, and the world was blessed with my entrance. Definite moment in time. I shared this sermon last week with uh, the Bartlett congregation, and afterwards, a guy came, up who I've known guy I've known thirty plus years. He comes up to me and he said, "So you'll be sixty five next month, huh?" That's what he got out of the message. <laughs> you'll be sixty five. I said, "Yeah, you're right. I will be at a definite moment in time." Time passes. Jesus came, eternal. Then he came to earth. Second, God the Son not only became one of us, he lived as one of us. He dwelt, look at John 1.14 again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word used here means to tabernacle, which goes all the way back to the Old Testament reference, the tabernacle and then the new temple, he was one of us. Familiarity in every way. He lived like we were. The word tabernacle was the portable worship center in the Old Testament where they met God called the tent of meeting where the presence of Shekinah glory of God was. In the temple, it was there, the Shekinah glory of God. God met people there. He tabernacled with them. In Revelation, the Bible says this, In the future, therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Tabernacle, same word. I heard a loud voice from the heavens saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, tabernacle, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God in the flesh. Jesus came, became one of us. He lived among us. Then he manifested God to us. Notice again, verse 14. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory means worth, importance, significance, reputation, splendor, brightness, majesty, and honor. And I love the word. It's so important. Please don't miss it in verse 14. We beheld his glory, what he was, his worth. The word beheld we get our English word theater from it. And here's what the word means, is that you focus on something with a calm, continuous gaze. You can't take your eyes off of it. It's kind of like when Mary first saw me. Okay, maybe not. So it means that you're absolutely mesmerized by what you're looking at. We beheld his glory. He was unique. We all knew it. We were just astounded at what we were looking at. John, who writes this gospel, who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, who wrote Revelation, called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't mean that arrogantly. What he meant by that was I cannot believe that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was God in the flesh, loved me. I'm not worthy of that. But he loved me. When you read his writings, set revelation aside, even though it's in there, but set revelation aside for a moment. In the Gospels and in all his epistles, there's a theme that just jumps out God loves us. And he came for us. What did God give you at Christmas? He gave you himself. He came. So we beheld theater that spectacle his miracles his teaching the magnificent manifestation of god had been in a temple but now is in the person of jesus christ look at verse 18 for just a second verse 18 no one has seen god at any time the only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father he has declared him, declared him, made him manifest. That's the word. We beheld his glory. We saw the glory of God. Back to verse 14. The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I love this. The idea of full of grace and truth means this. It's the invitation of God. It's number two in your handout. The invitation of God. He came for us, the incarnation. And here's what he says to you. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Not one of you can come to the Father except through me. But I will give it to you. Later on in the very chapter that we're reading... It says he gave us the right, the power, the authority to become children of God if we receive him. That's what Christmas is. He gives us the opportunity to have eternal life. Gives us the opportunity to be righteous in God. His children to be adopted into the family of God. His invitation full of grace and truth. In other words, you get this picture of unique, perfect balance of the incarnate word, God in the flesh. This is who he is. The idea of full means it's total, complete, abounding. The idea of grace is just what you think grace is. Jesus is full of grace. Now, I might show you grace, but I'm not going to show you complete, total grace because I'm, I can't. I'm not God. Jesus is full of it in grace. That's who he is. What is grace? Grace. It's giving you something you don't deserve. He gave you himself. He paid the debt for your sin on the cross. It is finished. He paid what I owed and could not pay. No matter how good I am, no matter how much money I give, how many good works I do, I can never atone for my sins. The Bible says there are none righteous. No, not one. So God sent the righteous one himself to die in our place so we could be righteous in him. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. So he's full of grace. He gives to you what you do not deserve. But he's also full of truth. Truth means something that's absolutely pure without error. You very rarely see these two mentioned together in Scripture, that balance. Grace without truth just becomes sentimentality. Truth without grace becomes religious legalism. But the balance in Jesus is this. He tells you the truth for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He shares the truth with you. But then he gives you the solution for truth. Come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Because I am the truth. You've heard me quoted a million times. What does truth do? Set you free. We're all, as human beings, slaves to sin. Jesus came and bought us back if we receive him and sets us free to be children of God. He he doesn't pull any punches. He tells you the truth. You're a sinner. But I'll pay for your sin. Your debt you can't pay. I'll pay it. That's why understanding at Christmas the significance of who Jesus Christ is is so important because it changes your life forever and for every day. So, the idea, in full of grace and truth number one, the God the Son loved us. He loved us. He meets you right where you are, He doesn't expect you to be perfect and then you can get in. He meets you right where you are, in your imperfection, in your sin. In my, my 9.30 class this morning, we're studying the life of David in 1 Samuel. And just today alone, in two verses, we, we, he lied twice. He pretended to be crazy in the next verse. And he caused 85 priests to have to be killed because he lied. That was David. A man after God's own heart. The one upon whose throne Jesus will reign from. David was not perfect. And then you can go read Psalm 51, Psalm 56, Psalm 34, and you can see David bowing before God and pouring out his heart before God after his own sin. How often do you sin? Regularly. Why? Because you're not perfect. But in Jesus, you can be declared righteous, forgiven, and then deal with it as a child of God as opposed to an enemy of God. That's what Christmas brings, the gift of God. Grace is unmerited, generous favor. Theologian named Tom Lowe describes grace as the greatest concept in history. That God would give us something we don't deserve. Because you think about it, even yesterday as I was doing that funeral and just talking to people and listening, in their mind you could hear them saying, well, i got to do this be forgiven and I got to do this. And just in conversations, you know, God says, no, you're forgiven. Faith alone in Christ alone, what he did when he came at Christmas to go die for you on the cross. Christmas is the celebration of the author of grace becoming a human being. He was born in Bethlehem. He was broken for no crime of his own, humiliated and crucified, rejected as satanic, That's crazy, because he loved us. Tim Keller says, Christmas is the end of thinking you're better than someone else. Because Christmas is telling you, you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. Incarnation. So truth is God the son paid for us. This is really important and we're wrapping up. God the Son paid for us. That's what truth means. He's full of truth. The, the idea is this, and I don't spend a lot of time on it because we could spend weeks, but here's the idea. Jesus was able to pay your debt because he was full of truth. No error he lived a sinless, perfect life as God the Son on earth, as God the man. He lived a perfect, sinless life. So when he died for our sins, they were not his own. They were ours. He paid our debt, not his, ours. So he could do that, and the Bible uses the term for that propitiation. It simply means satisfaction. God looked at Jesus' offer, and it satisfied God's demand for somebody to pay for sin. It satisfied God's demand. Jesus could do that because he is the truth. The reality, transparent that he was the God-man. The point is this. Our God was a person, is a person, the resurrected son of God, not a principle, not a thought, not a philosophy, not a set of do's and don'ts. He is a person, just like you're a person, except he was the perfect person who allowed himself to be your substitute. Instead of you paying for your sin, he paid for it. That's Christmas. Jesus is not a picture of God that we can learn from, even though he was the greatest example that ever lived. No, Jesus is God himself. A person, not a picture. He identified with us in every way. Jesus got tired. You can read these things in scripture. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus agonized. Jesus sweat. Jesus cried. He empathized. In Hebrews 2, the Bible says, In all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make, there's the word, propitiation for the sins of the people. So when you hurt, somebody hurts you. Somebody that, just like yesterday, my my dear friend, losing his brother, they're hurting and they're agonizing. Jesus understands. He empathizes with that. Read the story of Lazarus dying, and he agonized over his friend being dead. But then he walked up and raised his friend from the dead. You see the difference? Because he's God. But he understands everything you go through. He understands it. He empathizes. He loves you. That's Christmas. Max Lucado said, God loves you just the way you are. That's grace. But he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. That's truth. Grace and truth. Full of it. So number three on your handout is what we dealt with last week, and I just put it on here to tie, it, to tie all this together. Emmanuel, the incarnation. God with us. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. She'll bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Unto us a child is born. Notice the difference. A child is born, a son is given. He's always been the son of God eternally. At a definite moment in time, he came as the child. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. The Savior reigns share a true story with you, and then we're going to be done. Maybe it'll illustrate all that we've talked about today, and I know it's been a lot. This was several years ago. There was a mail carrier, a postman. Man, his wife had a sweet family and little girl. And around October of that year, the mom was tragically killed in an auto accident. And the dad, every night, would cry himself to sleep, and his little girl, she didn't know what to do, and she would ask him, Dad, are you ever going to be able to get over mommy's death? He said, well, only eternity, only eternity will help me get over this. Every night, cry himself to sleep, and every night, she would say, Daddy, what can I do? He said, only eternity, only eternity. So as a mail carrier, it's drawing near Christmas, obviously very busy, and he was working overtime, And his job that day was to go through and get all the letters that they didn't have a destination and do something with them. And he saw one that had his return address on the envelope, his house. So it was addressed to Santa Claus. And he opened it up, his little girl had written a letter to Santa Claus. Telling him the story about her mommy dying. How her daddy cried himself to sleep every night. And she said, she said, He says only eternity will get him past this. And she said, Santa, could you bring my dad a little eternity this year? Now, Santa's not bringing eternity, but who is? The baby in the manger. Jesus of Nazareth brings eternity, the greatest gift you will ever receive. He gave you himself. Let's pray.